I'm so glad that our Lord rose again, defeating hell, death, sin, and the grave, making it possible for those who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So I hope you have your Bibles with you as we look at Acts 3, our verses for today. We'll start at verse 11 and we'll work through the chapter today to the end of the chapter. And today's message is entitled, The Murdered Son Lives. The Murdered Son Lives. I'll ask you, if you will, in honor of the reading of sacred scripture, if you'll stand with me as we read these verses together. The Bible tells us it leaves off of the lame man, the lame beggar, at the feet of Peter and John, and it picks up in verse 11 and says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, they ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers have glorified His servant Jesus, whom you had delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. By his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus... He fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. As Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who come after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God had made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of these words. You may be seated, please. Now, last week, just to get adjusted where we need to be, last week we were a witness to the account of Peter and John as they encountered a lame beggar sitting outside what is called the beautiful gate or the eastern gate of the temple. The man begs for money. But instead, the Lord uses Peter and John as vessels to heal the man. 
And they understood that this was not of their own power. This was through Jesus of Nazareth. The man was healed. He leapt for joy. He went into the house of worship. And many people saw him. And they were in amazement. And if you recall, our point of application was just very simple. To reflect on our place as the evangelists. As Peter and John asked the man to look upon us. So we compel people to hear the good news. As a beggar, we relate to this healing. As he was poor and destitute, so are or were we spiritually bankrupt and have nothing in the bank to offer God. As he was lame and unable to get to worship, so are Or were we unable to reach God unless God quickens us and makes us alive in Him? Today's narrative continues. Have you ever been watching a good documentary? And at the very end of that documentary, you kind of wonder what happens next. A a where are they now moment. And you get to the end of that documentary and sometimes I'll have a little explanation of what happened later on. But... You get to a good documentary, you get to the end of it, and you've got no information, you got no sequel, and you wonder what happens next. Well, today's narrative is what happens next. And so we pick up, and we peer into the Scriptures, and we see this once lame man who was lame and begging for money, now healed, but I want you to notice what he does. Notice what he does. He clung to Peter and John. He grabbed a hold of them and clung to them. Here here are two men who represented the words of life to this man. And he grabbed a hold of them continually. And all the people saw this and they were astonished and they ran together in a place called Solomon's Porch. The evidence was before them. This man was once lame. His ankles were with no muscle He was healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who is now risen. And the people were astonished. They could not say that this man is faking it. They cannot deny that this was a genuine miracle through Jesus, the risen Christ. This man was lame. He was unable to walk. He had been that way for 40 plus years. And he is now healed. And there is no denying it. This is an absolute work of God. So what is Peter going to say as this man clings to him? What is Peter and John's rhetoric? What is what are they going to say? How are they going to use this man's healing to speak to their own people? How is he going to address the religious elite of Israel? What is the foundation of his argument? If you'll bear with me for just a few moments, We'll look at the foundation to what Peter preaches of. We'll look at this foundation, but first we must know what that foundation is. And we must trust in that foundation. So we trust in the foundation that was laid long ago. We trust in that foundation that God had laid even to say before the foundation of the world was even laid. But before I read these verses, I want us to be reminded of God's faithfulness. I want us to be reminded that God has fulfilled His promises by sending His Son Jesus. 
God laid out his covenant. God has fulfilled his covenant. And God has sent his son to bring this to pass. And so if God has done this, if God has supplied a way to be justified in his sight, if God has given us a way to be holy, set apart, sanctified, looking towards being glorified, then certainly we should be able to trust Him today, shouldn't we? Trust in the foundation that was laid so long ago. Peter saw that these people were in amazement. He was intentional. He surveyed his context. And he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as if we have done this in our own power or piety or righteousness in ourselves that we have made him walk? Once again, notice Peter's intentionality. And that is something that happens when a person is reborn. When God quickens a person and brings them to life in Jesus, we begin to look at things differently. We begin to see these divine appointments. And those who are redeemed and righteous would notice them now if we would pay attention to them and look for them. After Peter was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, divine appointments were replete. And we read about them through the book of Acts. And once the Lord got a hold of him... He used every chance and opportunity that he could to preach Jesus crucified. And here he does. He says, men of Israel, he loved his people. He loved his kindred. He loved the Hebrew people. He loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. And in just a few moments, he's going to pour his heart out before them. He's going to plead with them to, to repent. It's an expression of God's covenant people. It's a term that is used to try to turn people to look at their Jewish covenantal history. Now God has laid this covenant with you people, and, and the Messiah is the fulfillment of that. Peter's rhetoric here, his argumentation, is much like the Apostle Paul's that will come later. Why is this miracle such a wonder to you? It shouldn't be. It's not our own power that heals the man. But Jesus, see this portion of Scripture here? It messes up all of the word of faith movement. <laughs> all those faith healers that you see on TV, the Kenneth Copelands of the world, it messes that whole framework up. Because what they would have you believe is that you have the power in your words to speak something into existence, even your own power to heal. You just got to speak it enough. That's contrary to Scripture. That's contrary to what Paul and Peter and John and any of the apostles will preach. But listen intently to what Peter says. He says, it is not by my own power, it is not by my own piety that we have made this man walk. And just as humankind cannot offer salvation and atonement for their own sins, they certainly cannot heal themselves or perform a miracle. Do you know this? That the only man that ever performed a miracle on earth was Jesus? 
Now, he used people and he used vessels. He used what I like to call stewards over miracles. He gave stewardship over certain things, uh, signs and wonders and miracles. He gave stewardship over them, but ultimately through the person of Jesus. The same, listen, the same Holy Spirit that dwelt within Peter, the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in the apostles, the disciples, in Peter, who was once weak and we would even say cowardice, has now been bold in preaching. And that same Holy Spirit that dwelled in Peter is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in all those who have been born again. If you have been born again, you have the same Spirit of God in you that Peter, Paul, John, and all the apostles have. And so, I say that to say this, we can have boldness in Jesus. In Jesus. And not ourselves. And that's the point that Peter is making. Then he makes this case. He points back to the forefathers. He points back to the patriarchs. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. He's pleading with them. He glorified his servant Jesus. You delivered over. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. That he had decided to release him. Now Peter is going to show them that their guilt in the case of Jesus as Messiah, but how did God glorify Jesus of Nazareth? Well, He rose him from the dead. He rose from the dead. That's the ultimate glorification of King Jesus is that he is alive. But how is he going to reason? He says, number one, you have rejected him as your king. You have rejected him as Messiah, and you have condemned him to death as a criminal. You murdered the Son of God, even though Jesus said himself, that no man takes my life, I lay it down myself. Jesus died at the hands of wicked men, but it was still in the hands of a sovereign God. And even though Pilate wasn't innocent in this case, he wished to act according to some sense of justice, and he found no guilt in Jesus. He couldn't, couldn't charge our Lord with anything. You acted contrary to justice. You acted contrary to fairness. You cried out to release Barabbas, the murderer, over Jesus the innocent. And this is something that I always think of when we think of Barabbas and in the crowds, that if we were alive then, we probably would have been released to us Barabbas. You're in the crowds condemning the Lord. He says, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and you asked for a murder, a Barabbas, to be granted to you. The Gospel recalls how the people cried out for Barabbas to be released, who was, who was a murderer, and yet they sought to kill the only Righteous One to ever exist. Phil Johnson once said, as he was asked, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? He was asked this, and in his ministry, on staff with John MacArthur. And Phil Johnson said, he responded this way, why do bad things happen to good people? His response was that, that it only happened once. And they crucified him. That only happened one time. And they crucified our Lord. There's only been one person 
to exist who was eternally and wholly good, the man God Jesus who is crucified. If this is what Peter, he's pleading. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. That's why we are apostles, because we were witnesses to this. Prologue of John identifies the Logos, the Word. In John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is in the pro, prologue, as the Word dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, identifies the Logos, Jesus, the Word, enveloped in flesh, the author of life, and that nothing was made that was not made through God the Son, and you have crucified Him. But the hope of the gospel is simple. And there still is hope, even for the men of Israel, even for you today who do not know Jesus. There is hope. The hope is he rose from the dead and he is alive. Since the beginning of the fall, humankind itself has been doubting the work of the Lord. They have been trying to overthrow the work of God and if you don't believe that, let revival break out in this church today. Let true, genuine, fruitful revival break out. And the enemy will do everything that he can to disrupt that work. As futile as this effort might ultimately be, we, they would still put their best foot forward in trying to disrupt the work of the Lord. And here these men of Israel, they thought that the crucifixion would put an end to Jesus, his influence in the world. But man, were they wrong. <laughs> it turned the world upside down. It changed people's worldview. It changed people's heart. It changed people's day of worship. It changed the way people looked at things. In fact, the Lord amplified Christ's influence by the power of the Holy Spirit, which empowered the apostles, which empowers the disciples, which empowers us, and the veracity and the truth of the resurrection. I mean, that's something we can hold on to. He is alive. He's risen from the dead. You know that there is more historical documentation, more historical documentation, more evidence on the bodily resurrection of Jesus than there is George Washington as president. Do you realize that? So what is, what is Peter showing? It's simple. That they had been fighting against God. This futile battle. And it might seem that God had a completely different plan. That he overcome their evil plan by the raising of Jesus from the dead. Now if we believe in the power of the resurrection, and we do... We believe in the power of the gospel. We do. Why do we act sometimes as if we are hopeless and struggle through our whole lives as if, they're, as if we're hopeless? A child of God in Christ should be the happiest person alive. Don't you trust that God is going to provide all your needs? You trust that God's Word says in 1 John 5, 12 that he who has the Son has... Life? Don't you, trust the Lord? Don't you trust God is going to sustain His church as He did for thousands of years? And if we are faithful to preach, if we are faithful to teach, if we are faithful to lead, 
as if we actually believe that Jesus is alive and working. This foundation that was laid so many years ago, this is the foundation that that Jesus saves first. And in this we press on. In in my small little mind, I, I, I sometimes see God almost doing... Uh, I mean, trying to figure out what in the world we're doing down here. The Lord is all-knowing. But sometimes I see the Lord maybe upset with the things that we are doing, not pleased because of our lack of faith, because sometimes we're so so thin-skinned in things, not myself. Followers of Jesus should be some of the toughest skinned people around. And yet, we act defeated if someone looks at us the wrong way. Imagine imagine how empty the Colosseum would be in church history. Christ followers fed to the lions and gladiators and and executed under, under many of the Roman emperors. Imagine how empty the Colosseums would be if those early martyrs were as thin-skinned as we are today. See, we're too busy playing church instead of staying planted and serving Jesus where He has us at. Build upon the foundation that has already been laid. And what is this foundation? In Acts 3.16 it says, And by His name... By faith in His name, He has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health. In the presence of you all, it is salvation in the risen Christ. The foundation is repentance and faith in Jesus as Savior. You know how many pulpits today are absent from preaching repentance. Repentance is missing from many pulpits today. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. After they looked on this man who was healed, they cannot deny this miracle. Peter moves them, he pleads with them to examine their heart, to examine this miracle, to examine Jesus even closer, to examine the person and work of Jesus. I think of of Christ and his work as a fine jewel, a fine diamond, that everywhere you look at it, it, it's beautiful, unblemished. Anywhere you look at that angle of Christ and what he has done, you find no blemish, you find no flaw. Examine Jesus. Examine his work. Using every opportunity to point to Jesus, Peter says, that you all acted in ignorance. You all acted in ignorance. And, but now is the time to move forward. They had sinned. Their sin was not so deep. The stain was not so deep that it could not be forgiven. Do you hear me? The stain of sin is not so deep that you call upon the Lord Jesus. He will be faithful to forgive you. 
The question is, did they know that they crucified their Messiah? This was given in prophetic utterance from the prophets in verse 18. God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that Christ would suffer. and He thus fulfilled that. They foretold the suffering servant. Many of Israel, they know the messianic verses. They know the messianic predictions. Just who did they think Isaiah 50 was about? Isaiah 53, who did they think that that was at, about? Some would say that this is Israel, but it is clear that this is the anointed one. This is Jesus, Messiah. Isaiah 50 and verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. That sounds like it was straight from the crucifixion scene, doesn't it? Now here's the exhortation. Here's the challenge that is missing today. And why is it missing? Because we are afraid that we will offend somebody. We are afraid that we're going to offend somebody. They're going to get mad at us. But you know one of the most loving things that you can do as a Christ follower is share the love of Jesus. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And these are men who crucified him. He says, repent, turn back. That time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, and that is Jesus. My friends, it has always been repentance. It has always been repenting of sin and trusting in the finished work of Christ that brings salvation. It has never been anything else other than repentance. Now, repent means to turn away from that sin. It means to turn totally away from that sin. In fact, it is a total metamorphosis, a changing of the heart and the mind, a complete 180 running the other direction from that sin with no intentions of ever going back to that sinful state again. Now, does that mean that sometimes we glance back at it as we struggle? Peter says, turn back from, or turn away from sin and be converted. Definitely turn to God in, in your conduct as well in your mind, your heart, your mind, your worldview. Jesus will change your worldview. Peter then preaches, so that you may be new, refreshed in the Lord. In other words, the burden of sin will be lifted through Jesus. I remember when when I was saved, I remember when I gave my heart to Jesus. I remember when I was made new. And I remember walking outside and feeling as something was lifted. I couldn't explain it other than the burden of sin had been lifted. Just because a person or a church mentions the name Jesus doesn't always necessarily mean that they understand the depth of Him and His work. Repentance is part of knowing who Jesus is too. The Bible continues, Whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke of by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. So this is speaking of the return of the Lord that will transpire at the end of the age in Revelation 21 verse 5, that He will make 
all things new. And there will come a time when the Lord Jesus will come and he will, will return to judge all things. And, and during that time, there will be no time to repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus while you can, while the Spirit is moving. Thank the Lord Jesus that he will restore this broken world. Moses says this, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You will listen to him in whatever he tells you. And of course, coming from the mouth of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18. He was pointing to Jesus. He was pointing to the Messiah, the prophet like himself, who would be the ultimate and true deliverer, who will not just lead his people out of bondage physically, but lead towards spiritual freedom from sin by his death and his resurrection. And it will come to pass that every soul who does not listen to this prophet shall be destroyed from his people. There will be a day, sadly, when people will say, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I heal the sick? Didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I start a community event in your name? Didn't I pray on the baseball diamond in your name? And unless that person has clung to Jesus for the absolution and forgiveness of their sin, unless that has happened, Jesus will say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. I don't think that there are more frightening words that have ever been penned in Scripture or in all of history. No more frightening words exist than to think of the Lord saying to you, Depart from me, I never knew you. So do you think it's important to properly preach Jesus? You might say, well, I don't need all of that theology. I don't need all of that doctrine. I just need to know that Jesus loves me. So I would have a follow-up question for you. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the very moment you begin to answer that question, the very moment your wheels start turning to answer that question, who is Jesus? You become a theologian. You are thinking about teaching and doctrine. So we best answer correctly. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who come after him, they also proclaim these days. As Samuel wrote this, and Peter expounds from it, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 says, that He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You are the sons and the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, he is expounding from Genesis 2, uh, 22, verses 17 and verses 18, that as the stars are in the heaven and the sand on the seashore, shall your offspring be blessed and will possess the gate of its enemies. And your offspring shall be in all the nations of the earth and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The covenantal blessing will come through Messiah Jesus. And then Peter points to after the resurrection, the most important event in history, God raising up his servant sent to you first, Jewish nation, Hebrew people, to bless you, to turn you from your wickedness 
and to turn away from that wickedness and to turn to Jesus as your long-awaited, anointed one, the Messiah. So repentance is at the heart of Peter's message. He pleads and he reasons with them to turn from their sin and trust Jesus as Messiah. And that would be my plea. To turn from sin, turn away from repentance and trust Jesus as Lord. Peter says, in turning away from your wickedness and turning away from your sin, God will keep blessing you, which means growing you in your faith. It's a continuation. He will keep blessing you and growing you in your faith of Jesus. Repentance and faith have always been the key to salvation. And we're afraid that if we preach repentance that we are offending somebody. But the most loving thing that you can do is to plead to move out of that sin and move to Christ. It's always been the key to salvation, repentance in Jesus. Having God-given faith Jesus to plead for forgiveness, repent from our sinfulness and turn from our, our wickedness. And now he is utilizing the foundation that the Lord led and pled with his kindred, pled with his people. And there is a lesson here. The first lesson is this. It was clear. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus. Christ's follower for the follower of Jesus, repent of any idols that have captivated and captured your heart and your mind, any unforgiveness, anything that needs to be laid at the feet of Jesus Messiah, repent of that sin. Anything that has captured your heart and stolen your attention and stole your affection away from Jesus, lay them at his feet. Be free from them today. The second challenge might be overwhelming, but it is needed. I have had the privilege to live in farm life for almost 10 years now. There are some loving and generous people who live in this community who love the Lord and they pride themselves in taking care of their neighbors. I often hear people say this, this is a unique place. People come together and they help each other out when they are in need. Do you agree? I've heard people say that they might talk about you, but when you're in need, they're going to come and help you. You might say, well, we live in a community who prides themselves in loving one another, and I think that's the case. We examine ourselves deep down. Is that the case? And now I know that I will never really truly be seen as a farm life resident. And that's okay. See, that's another lesson on elitism and the sin of partiality that will be in another sermon for another day. But here's the challenge. I want you to think about this. If we say that we are a community and a church who loves their neighbor and will do anything for them, why are we not sharing the gospel with those that we know who are lost? If we truly love our neighbor, and if we would truly do anything for them, and including me, if we love them enough to share a bowl of chicken and pastry, why can't we love them enough to share Jesus? How about this? How about those that we know who attend 
a church that, that is not preaching the truth of Jesus? Do we love them enough to meddle a little bit? The apostles did. Do you have a loved one, a family member who is attending a church who is not preaching Jesus, is not preaching repentance and forgiveness in Jesus alone? Do we love them enough to meddle it a little bit? Uh, Peter preached this message and he pleaded with his people and the foundation that was laid, the very foundation of the world, seen by the prophets, manifested in the work of Christ. He's here before you. Believe. Trust in him. That is our message. Not whether or not you are a good neighbor. Those things are important. But it's not so much whether or not you are a good neighbor. And if we are a good neighbor, share the truth that only Jesus saves. Would you be committed to do that? If I put something in your hands today, would you be committed to say, come to church with me? Find a place to go to church. Or share the gospel with them if you don't know how to share the good news. Invite them to church. Or share the good news. Would you commit it, be committed to do that today? Would you say, I'm going to share with my brothers and sisters, those around me. You might say, well, all of my community, they know Jesus. So we assume. Leaving you with this challenge, let's pray.